we vow with all beings from this life on throughout countless lives to hear the true Dharma. These words have been ringing with me as we've been sitting here. This is our vow. This is our practice to hear the true Dharma. What does that mean? How do we hear the true Dharma? There are many definitions of the word Dharma. It means the teachings of the Buddha. It also means, in a simple but very potent way, truth. So we vow to hear the true truth, (laughs) the real McCoy. We don't vow to hear the truth that somebody else told us. We don't vow to hear the truth that was written down in a book somewhere. We vow and we come into our practice with the intention, the aspiration to hear the living Dharma, the truth that's unfolding in you, in me, in all of us together, moment by moment. It's alive. And we have this extraordinary opportunity to discover that for ourselves. I've been thinking that this vow (laughs) is a radical political act. We are living in a time in which there is an assault on many things. An assault on women's bodies, an assault on black and brown bodies, an assault on the body of the earth itself, and many, many others. Too long a list to name. There's also an assault on the truth. This is so fundamental to our practice that we sit down in the middle of our life, and we vow to hear what's here. We vow to be with. How do we do that? Well, there's a simple answer, which is kind of baked into the sentence. But the obvious way that we engage in hearing the truth is that we have to listen. It sounds simple, but you all know that it's not. And I think that there's a difference between hearing, hearing I think of I do with my ears, and listening. Listening 
listening we do with the mind, the heart, the whole body. Listening is the quality of attention that we bring to each moment, <coughs> to each breath, to ourselves, to each other. So we practice here in this radical way, learning to listen in and also listen out. There's a beautiful, uh, <laughs> I've been preparing for this uh, Jukai ceremony. And so uh, in a very amateur way, <coughs> learning a little bit of kanji, something about Chinese characters. And one of my favorite characters is a character for in the Chinese character for listen. There are different characters that translate as listen, but one of them uh, describes this listening beyond the ears. The character itself has built into it the radicals for ear, eye, heart, and undivided attention. We might say in Zen, our wholehearted devotion, attention. That's how we listen. Some of you know the iconography of Avalokiteshvara. Avalokiteshvara is the bodhisattva of great compassion. And in many, many images of Avalokiteshvara, you see her with a thousand arms, a halo of arms, and at the end of each arm is a hand. And in each hand, at the center of a hand, is an eye. And Avalokiteshvara is, is often translated as the one who hears the cries, the one who hears the cries of the world. And we're, we're learning, we're learning how to do that, how to hear those cries, how to listen with our ears, our eyes, our hands, our arms, our hearts. I've been a student of myth. I've been studying myths and stories for the last five or six years and really enjoying uh, learning these stories. One of my favorite myths is an ancient Sumerian myth, the myth of Inanna. Inanna was the queen of heaven and earth. And uh, the opening line of the myth of Inanna goes like this. It says, Inanna, <laughs> Inanna, the queen of heaven and earth, set her ear to the great below. And as she sets, so this tells us, she's, it's about listening, right? This is what this myth is telling us about. And as she sets her ear to the great below, she hears the cries of her sister, Ereshkigal who lives in the underworld. Again, if we understand this not as literal but as mythic story, we can understand that a sister figure in a myth is a part of ourselves. And in this case, this is a sister part of a nana who's living underground. 
And the story of the myth of Inanna is how she goes down into the underworld. And as she goes, she's stripped of all her royal accoutrements until when she arrives at the court of her sister, it says she stands before her sister naked and bowed low. Maybe it seems a little too much, but some of you may feel a little like that. That as you sit, as you venture, as you listen to the cries, as you listen to the cast-off parts of yourself, the parts you haven't been able to or willing to listen to, as you go down with your ears, your eyes, your hearts open, and you hear those cries, it kind of feels a little like sashim sometimes. So don't be alarmed, but the next part of the story goes like this. So uh, Inanna presents herself to her sister Ereshkigal, and Ereshkigal immediately strikes her dead and hangs her body on a meat hook. I didn't make the story up. (laughs) So the good news is that Inanna was wise enough to understand, as we do, that we don't walk the path alone. And before she went down to visit her sister into the underworld, she gathered these two magical creatures, kind of, I imagine them like mosquitoes, little little teeny things. And they had great names too. They are called the Kurgara and the Galatua. So they followed her down as she went. And uh, once the body, her Anana's body was on the wall, uh, these two creatures buzzed over and uh, hovered close, listening to Ereshkigal and listening to her cries. And she was lying, it said, on a cement slab, crying out, oh, my back. Anyone feel that? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my knees. (laughs) Oh, my heart, my bank account, my (laughs) relationship, whatever it is. Oh, we call out. And here's what happened. Those two little creatures did something very simple and very profound. When Ereshkigal said, oh, my heart, they said, oh, your heart. Oh, my head. They said, oh, your head. And so on. They didn't judge. They didn't tell a story. They didn't try to fix her. They just said, yes, we hear you. And amazingly, in the story, it says that after some repetitions of this, Ereshkigal sits upright, and she says, who are you, little mirroring creatures who are listening so beautifully to my pain? Who are you? Because I feel so much better now, and I am going to give you whatever you want. You can have the bounty of the fields. You can have the depths of the oceans. Whatever gift you want, it's yours. And they say, well, actually, we just like that body over there on the meat hook. 
And so Oresh, uh, Inanna is removed from the wall and revived by these magical creatures through the power of their simple, tender, attuned listening. And back she goes to the world above. For me, this is a beautiful understanding of what it is we're doing here. That we're learning to listen in this very intimate way. Simple. Pain in the knee. Oh, pain in the knee. Monkey mind. Oh, monkey mind. Whatever it is, we just meet. And as we do that, something happens. Yesterday, uh, I was late, and uh, I've spent a lot of time in uh, living in Buddhist communities and Buddhist communities, and you know, but being late is kind of not okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so my whole system was, you know, reverberating with being late. And what happened was that. I was staying at my the house where my daughter lives, and I was taking a lift. And I got in the lift with an hour to get here, and it's a 28-minute ride, according to Lyft. But we got in this massive traffic jam. <laughs> it was a kind of traffic jam where we were sitting in an intersection, and I watched the lights, green, yellow, red green, yellow, red, and we didn't move. Six rounds. <laughs> and meanwhile, on the little thing, you know, the lift map that I could see, um, it said that we would still be there in 21 minutes. And I thought, anyhow, I heard something. And what I heard, this is confession in the spirit of the Ehe Koso Hotsuganman, what I heard was my voice. And what I heard in my voice was tension and irritation, tightness, and I am ashamed to say some entitlement and separation. What I heard was my voice saying something like, um, I, I need to get to the Zendo. <laughs> <laughs> but it was not a kind voice. And I heard it, and I didn't like it. I didn't like the me that was saying those words. And I recognized it. I did, as Laura spoke about so beautifully yesterday, I felt the ouch of that. I think of that as the voice of I am. <laughs> I am a busy person, I am in a rush, I am an important person, I am the teacher, I have, like that. <laughs> and it was so unpleasant. We all live with our versions of that voice, the me voice, the I am voice. So I felt it fully, even if briefly. And I remembered this beautiful line, it's one of my favorite lines from the story of the life really the myth of the life of the Buddha. The Buddha is practicing 
in a very devoted, dedicated way, but he's a little off track, and he's like right on the edge of starving himself to death. Maybe you know this story. And right there on the brink, this voice bubbles up and says, might there be another way? <laughs> I love that. It's one of my mantras. I carry that voice. And it came to me yesterday, me and Luis sitting in the traffic jam in the black Subaru. Might there, and of course, there was another way. And so in the feeling the ouch, in remembering that, is there, might there be another way, I changed my tune. Maybe I would say I changed my tone. And I said, what do you think we should do? I held out an olive branch from the me over here, the irate customer, and him over there, and said, let's figure this out together. And it's a fairly complicated story because it took me two hours to get here, but I will say this. Uh, he helped me out. And he dropped me at a train. <laughs> and um, something really wonderful happened between being that tight, irritated Zen teacher and becoming <laughs> completely lost, non-New Yorker trying to navigate the subway. So I say this because you too may sometimes feel completely lost, but it's a beautiful experience or can be. So before I say that, I want to say a little bit more about, oh, before I say what happened in that process for me, I want to say another confession. I think this story will give you some backdrop to understand how this turn happened for me. And this is a story about 25 years ago. <laughs> I was living at Green Gulch Farm, and uh, Tia was there. And I was, um, like I've heard from many of you, very sincere, earnest, devoted, dedicated, maybe some would say desperate. I was in a lot of suffering, and I really wanted to wake up. And my way of doing that, the only thing I really knew how to do was to try really hard. That was my mode. So that's what I did. And so I filled my practice with a lot of doing. One of the practices that Tia and I took up together way back then was a practice we called putting others first. It seemed really good, and it gave me something to do. Right? <laughs> so I went to see my teacher. Many of you know Reb Anderson, my teacher at the time. And I came in full of a zealousness about this new practice and maybe just a touch of pride. And I explained that we were doing this practice. Actually, I didn't say we, just me. I'm doing this practice, like really wanting appreciation for how good it was. <laughs> and uh, I expressed myself and um, he didn't say anything. <laughs> and I sat there in the discomfort, and then I said, so I'm doing this because I think that if I put others first, if I practice in this way, it will start to unravel that 
solid sense of self that I carry around. <laughs> now it got really uncomfortable because there was a long silence. <laughs> and after uh, several weeks, <laughs> what felt like several weeks, he looked at me right in the eye and he said, <laughs> I remember this 25 years later, right? He said, someday, <laughs> someday you will understand that you have it completely backwards. <laughs> it's taken me a long time to understand. I was remembering this morning when he said that I thought, he must not have understood what I was saying. <laughs> but of course, he did. So I discovered yesterday uh, in this journey that it was being stripped of myself that allowed compassion to come forward. And it didn't just come from me. It came from all of the people who were so <laughs> kind to me as I was completely befuddled and lost trying to find my way. I was telling Tia that I was, I didn't know I mean, I couldn't tell them I was going to the Brooklyn Zen Center, right? It wasn't going to help. And even the address, which I had, wasn't that helpful. I didn't even know where I was. Not only didn't I know where I was, but I didn't know where I was going. So I would say, Does this will this train take me here? And they said, well, where are you trying to go? And I say, I don't know. <laughs> but people were so kind. They took out their phones, and they helped figure out. And, I, and there was a, there's a stop called Carroll Street. So I thought, aha. <laughs> so I just figured out how to get to the Carroll Street station and then I walked through here. But I had a lot of help along the way. It was really <coughs> quite beautiful. And by the time I came out of the, <laughs> the subway, it was this extraordinary, beautiful, crisp, bright, cold day. And I felt so free. I had been freed of being the irritated Zen teacher and I was just uh, vulnerable person, lost, who needed help. It was a beautiful experience. It is compassion that wakes up. You chant, I've been told, I haven't heard it, you chant every Saturday morning the Heart Sutra. Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, when deeply practicing, <coughs> sees the truth of the no separate solid self, the empty skandhas. So I chanted that for years and years, and I was really interested in the skanda part. <laughs> and one day, this was long after I had been told that one day I would get it, you know, I would get it, I would understand. One day, as we were chanting, I suddenly realized, oh, all these years I've been chanting the same thing. It's compassion. Avalokiteshvara, that's who wakes up. That's what wakes up. And it turns out, as Laura said yesterday, 
that that waking up may take us through some unfamiliar, difficult, naughty, painful even territory. But we don't walk or sit or practice alone. We sit and we learn to listen deeply, deeply to our own cries so that we can also learn to listen and to respond deeply, deeply to the cries of the world. So uh, it turns out that the name that I was given when I went through Jukai ceremony uh, has a different character for listening, but has listening in it. It's part of why I think I've been attracted to this as an understanding of practice. So the name that I was given uh, is Mon, which is listening. Itsu, which is one. Anka, peaceful transformation. And there's a secret teaching in the name, which is listening to each, listening to each, each moment, each breath, each thought, each pain, listening to the unique particularity of each moment which allows us to listen deeply to the unique particularity of each person, each situation. But that each, that listening to each, is also listening to one, to oneness. And part of the, I was going to say trick, there are no tricks in Zen. <laughs> Somehow you've got to get your zagu on the mat with these certain folds without putting the stick down in the wrong place and then bend. There's no tricks. You just kind of fumble along. <laughs> the secret teaching is that we're learning to listen deeply to the uniqueness, to the particularity, to celebrate the you that's only you at the same time that we listen and are held by our collectiveness, our shared humanity, our singularity, our human humankindness. And it's in that ability to handle, manage, be with, listen to both things at the same time without, how would I say, without upholding one or the other, without slipping over to one side or the other, but to be able to be in that aliveness. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's what we're practicing. We're learning how to do that. So I'm going to close with... Uh, one of my favorite Zen stories that speaks to this. This is the Zen story about little George. You'll find it in the Book of Serenity, case I'm kidding.
little George. Uh, little George, as a little boy, uh, grew up in the south of America to parents who were slaves. And George was a little sickly as a child, and so he couldn't work in the fields. And it turns out that he had this amazing green thumb, this capacity with plants. Some of you may recognize as I unfold the story, he had a nickname. He was called the Little Plant Doctor. That's what people called him. And he grew up to become uh, the genius of the botanist and social revolutionary that was uh, George Washington Carver. So as a little boy, he would gather the plants from the people in his community and he would take them out. He created a plant hospital behind his house, his cabin in the little forest. And he would heal the plants. He would make them well. And one day, a woman came to get her plant from little George. And she said, what's your secret? How do you do it? Little George, give it up, right? And he said to her, if you listen to things, if you listen to things and love them, they will reveal themselves to you. If you listen to things and love them, they will reveal themselves to you. For me, this is such a beautiful, pith, Zen teaching about what it is that we're doing here, about how it is that we come to hear the true Dharma. We don't have to make the truth. <laughs> we just have to listen. We have to practice being with the particularity and the universality of each moment in our seat. It's not happening somewhere else. It's right here. And when we listen with love, I don't mean that we're listening with, I don't know what, like being niceness. Because it's not enough. If being nice were enough, we wouldn't, there wouldn't be so many cries for us to hear in the world. But listening, I, um, is, I think of not as a feeling, but as a force. Not listening. Love. I think of as not a feeling, but a force. Love is strong. When we listen with love, we're listening with all of our care, with all of our interest. We're listening the way little George listened to the plants so that life itself reveals itself to us. Late, great Maya Angelou said, love knows no boundaries. This is strong love. love knows no boundaries. It jumps hurdles. It leaps fences. It penetrates walls. Love is the thing that binds. Love is what connects us as we listen. 
to ourselves, to each other, to all the cries in our wide, aching world. So this is a radical, political practice we're engaging. This listening with love. And I am so deeply grateful to have begun to learn to listen in this way. Deeply grateful for the practice. Deeply grateful to all of you for being willing to listen to your own cries, to be willing to be lost, befuddled, to not know where you are or what's happening, and to do that together, to do that knowing that while no one can do your practice for you, you, I, we, we don't practice alone. So I, uh, deep, deep thanks to all of us for being willing to take on this very simple, not so easy practice that we are navigating together. And may all of our loving listening heal and benefit many, many beings and reveal the true Dharma, the real McCoy, the living life, the livingness of our life as it's unfolding in each of our seats. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.